A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking with Chuck Michelle, Second Amendment attorney, head of the California Rifle and Pistol Association, about the huge lawsuit uh, filed this week against California Attorney General Rob Bonta. Can't leave him out. But also the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well as the chief of police in Laverne, California. This lawsuit taking on some of the uh, post-Bruin restrictions on concealed carry, not in terms of the sensitive places. We've already got a lawsuit filed. That's May versus Bonta. Now, this is actually uh, regarding the process of acquiring a concealed carry license and all of the barriers that both the state of California and local jurisdictions like Los Angeles County and, say, in Laverne, California, have put in the way of people who want to exercise their right to keep and bear arms, whether it's the four figures that it's going to cost you to apply for a carry license in Laverne or the 18 months you're going to have to wait before you get approved or denied in Los Angeles County, to the fact that if you don't live in California, you can't carry in California because they don't recognize any out-of-state permits. They don't issue permits to non-residents. So your right to keep and bear arms disappears if you live in one of the 49 other states as soon as you cross the state line. One of the plaintiffs in this case, a uh, Floridian who travels to California quite a bit, would like to be able to exercise his right to bear arms when he's in the state, but is absolutely unable to do so without breaking the law. Again, we're going to talk with Chuck Michelle about this uh, hugely important case coming up here in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's talk about this for a second. Joe Biden's America. It's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the look at the receipt the next time you go to the grocery store. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it and I know it. And that is why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 company of the year with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. And now let's get to our conversation with California Rifle and Pistol Association head and Second Amendment attorney extraordinaire Chuck Michelle, talking about the latest attempt to claw back our right to keep and bear arms out there in California. Chuck, appreciate you carving out a couple of minutes from your very busy schedule to talk with us today. Always a pleasure, Cam. Happy to happy to come on your show whenever you'll have me. And it is always a pleasure to talk about the lawsuits that you're filing, because this is really, again, I mean, you talk about the CCW Reckoning Project that California Rifle and Pistol Association is engaged in, and you all are clawing back uh, this fundamental right, you know, lawsuit after lawsuit, if that's what it's going to take. And this is a hugely important case, right? We were just talking before uh, we started uh, this interview, we've got May versus Bonna. Now, that's taking on um, the post-Bruin carry bills, right? The sensitive places and those types of restrictions. This new lawsuit, CRPA versus LA Sheriff's Department, this is taking on, before you even get your concealed carry license, right? This lawsuit is challenging all of the barriers that the state of California and these local governments are erecting between residents and non-residents and their Second Amendment right to bear arms. Well, there, there is a non-residency claim in there, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the the reason that we had to do this, you know, uh, after after Bruin came down, even before Bruin came down, remember the Peruta case? CRPA mm-hmm. had the Peruta case. We won in the three judge panel. They struck down the good cause requirement. They went on bonk. They overturned it. Supreme Court didn't take it. So the state of the law before Bruin in California on CCWs was you can have the good cause requirement. But the the, the ruling in that three by that three judge panel, it, it, so it wasn't mandatory. It wasn't a compelling court order, but it was very persuasive. And so a lot of conservative thinking sheriffs and police chiefs read that and changed their policy and started issuing CCWs. So there was a lot of counties, particularly North, North Northern California, and, and then even Orange County flipped, that's, that became basically shell issue. So there were more permits coming out in California than ever before, thanks to CRPA's efforts even before Bruin. Then when Bruin came down, uh, we immediately saw the writing on the wall. I, we know the kind of games this, these issuing agencies play uh, and we could even see like Joe, uh, uh, Attorney General Bonta sent out an email saying you can't require good cause anymore, but you can jack up the good moral character thing and use that as your excuse, essentially. Uh, but but uh, it's more pragmatic in L.A. County. First of all, L.A. County is the biggest county, most populated county in the state. So if if we get CCWs being issued there, we're probably going to see those numbers rise quickly. Of, of the gross number of CCWs in the state of California. Uh, and they were taking too long. They take up to a year and a half to process these applications. I wouldn't say it's necessarily philosophical. I mean, I'm sure there's been some resistance, but I think the sheriff has bigger fish to fry. This particular sheriff, I don't think he cares if people get a CCW, but he's kind of at war with the County Board of Supervisors over his budget. You know, they have the whole defund the police, all that baloney. Right. And so he he doesn't have an, a lot of money, so he can't put as much staff towards processing permit applications. But we're like, you know, that's not our problem. Right. The state is the one who initiate who's who's forced this licensing scheme to be in place. You want to avoid your administrative overhead? Go constitutional carry. You know what I mean? Or streamline yeah. the process, or or extend that. You know, got, in California, you still got to get renewed every two years. Extend that to five, like most states do. You know, uh, so they have a lot of barriers to getting the permit. You got to go through these time consuming hoops, psychological exams and stuff like that. And and then it takes the clerical staff at the sheriff's department a long time to process the applications. Now, they've speeded they, they've sped it up, but it still takes a year. Even the state law in California says you can't take more than 120 days. It used to be 90. They just changed it. Now, that's probably too long, too. Yeah, but for now, for now, we can at least say to the court, "Look, the state law says you got to do it in 120 days. They're taking a year. You, you have to. They have to allocate more resources to to, to processing these uh, permit applications, and that may wind up being an issue where he can use the sheriff can use this lawsuit as something to go to the board of supervisors and say, "You got to fund this." And if that happens, you know that's a win. As long as they're processing those applications and not throwing all kinds of unconstitutional subjective uh hoops in the way right now the other part of this was laverne the city of laverne is charging a thousand dollars for a ccw processing for the process that's just no one you you can't do that 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 prices there's too many people who don't have a thousand dollars to throw towards a permit they got to renew every two years right you know what i mean 
I mean, it's not, this is not, CCW is not for the rich. Okay. This is not, this is not a, a classist thing. Everybody gets one provided they're not, you know, a violent felon or something. Uh, so we, the Laverne is sued too, because they're charging too much. And the gambit that they're, the, 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 the sort of the racket that they're running out here is they're now, these jurisdictions are turning to private processing companies like MyCCW or Permidium. They're hiring these companies to process some parts of the application. And then rather than internalizing that administrative cost, they pass that along, pass it through to the applicant. Well, no, you can't do that either. You can't, that's not, you can't like get around the internal government processing thing by outsourcing it to a vendor and then charging the applicant the cost of the, that you have to pay the vendor. No, you eat those costs. You know, the, the, it's the state who imposed this licensing scheme. It's the state's problem to pay for it. You know, this is like a, a parade permit or a, or a, you know, a protest permit or anything. You can't charge a thousand dollars to go have a protest. It's not, you know, it's, it, you're pricing people out of the market. And I think that's part of that is intentional in some of these jurisdictions. So we challenge that too. So it takes too long, costs too much. And then the DOJ drags their feet on background checks. They're not processing background checks fast enough either. So we're suing them to speed that process up. And then last but not least, uh, if you don't live in California, you can't get a California uh, license, a CCW, and your license from whatever other state you're in is not valid in California. So your right to keep and bear arms doesn't end because you drive from Arizona to California and cross a state line. So we're suing over uh, out-of-state permitting and respecting other states' permits. So it's a pretty good, <laughs> it's a pretty good conglomeration of of different claims and and they should resolve you know the process has become the new battleground you, you can't require a good cause but what can you require exactly mm -hmm. and, uh, so we've got sb2 challenging sensitive places over designation and now we've got the la sheriff case that should uh, speed up the process and keep down the price and and you know both of these cases i think have natural implications beyond california um new york i think is the only other state that i'm aware of that doesn't recognize anybody else's permits, uh, doesn't allow for a non-resident to acquire a carry license. But we're talking about two of the most populous states in the country, right? So even if, and these states are outliers by their very nature. It's not that, uh, you know, these were outliers in the 19th century. These are outliers today as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fees that you talk about, the four figures you have to pay in order to exercise your right to keep your arms, we're seeing games like that being played uh, in blue states in a post-brewed environment as well. California is not the only one. I think maybe some of the most egregious examples are found in California, right? Because you've got not only these third-party companies, but you've got these uh, psychological exams that uh, many jurisdictions are imposing, right? Where you've got to go and you've got to sit down and take a psychological test. That's being challenged as well, right? Yep, yep, yep. But this I, subjective tests that Bruin doesn't allow. It's got to be objective criteria. Yeah, but I want people to understand, like, as bad as it is in California... And as bad as this is for Californians, this lawsuit, I think it has national implications. Um, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you got to keep in mind, uh, California didn't come up with this sensitive places law in the mind of Gavin Newsom. None of these guys in Sacramento are sitting there thinking about anything beyond their next press conference and their next election. They're not thinking about, oh, what does Bruin really do and how can we you know, get around it? They're going to every town law. 
and saying, how can we get around it? Or more likely, every town law is going to them and pushing this, this agenda. And it's not just CCWs and trying to make those hard, harder to get. It's also full auto, I mean, uh, semi-auto bans, magazine capacity limitations, prohibited places, prohibited people, uh, 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 roster, unsafe, unsafe handgun rosters. All of this is is a way to and and taxes excise taxes all of this is is just part of the effort and it's being coordinated nationally by uh uh every town to push these new laws and then when we sue over them or or people in the other uh, groups in the other states sue over them that every town law is help there to help them help help state attorney generals write the briefs yeah so this is not you know bloomberg's money is right there in the game you know, he's got lawyers from some of the biggest firms in the country and the world, uh, and, and they're not dumb. Uh, they're right. pretty fucking. They're pretty freaking clever, <laughs> and they can they can come up with creative ways to try and frustrate uh, what the intention of Bruin. And so we have to keep fighting back yeah. and see what happens with Rahimi. Maybe the Supreme Court straightens some things out with that one. Well, we can hope so. But, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you talk about every town law and not only do you have every town law, which is basically, again, this is their own white shoe law firm, right? They're in-house exactly. law firm for gun control. Yeah. But yeah. now we're starting to see alumna of every town law move on to academia, right? So University of Minnesota Law School, Megan Walsh used to be with every town law. And now she's running the gun violence clinic there. So you've got law students who are working to help Attorney General Keith Ellison file lawsuits. Um, I think Massachusetts. Uh, the attorney general just hired an uh, Everytown Law alumni to uh, to work in their office of gun violence prevention. So, you know, it, it's they've got this network that they're building right within they've not just been, the not just the private sector, but the public sector as well. Yeah, they've been bivacking. They've been putting plants. You know, they'll fund a position at an attorney's at a city attorney or county council's office. They'll fund a position. It's like an endowed chair. You know, they pay for a staffer, and it's a staffer they pick. So this is that's not new, but it's it's definitely. Uh, happening more frequently, but it, they've been embedding, you know, it's like a freaking Manchurian candidate. You know, they put put these influencers right in government offices to try and steer the policy the way every town law wants it to go. Yeah. And then uh, they get judges to complain about, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, this, this attorney or this historian, well, they don't have the right credentials, right? Uh, they, 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 uh, yeah, they worked or they supported the Second Amendment. Um, I've seen some very one sided, uh, you know, rulings where the plaintiff's experts are sort of disregarded. The defendant's experts are, you know, placed on a pedestal. Uh, that's probably another topic for another uh, interview. But getting back to CRPA versus uh, LASD. I want to talk for a second. You know, you talk again about the scope of this lawsuit, all of these various provisions that are being challenged. And each of these provisions has a plaintiff with a very compelling story attached. Right. Yes. So the uh, non-resident, this Florida resident uh, who's a Ph.D. candidate, spends a lot of time in California. Now, why should his rights stop at the state line? Um, you've got an individual, several residents from Laverne who are named plaintiffs. Um, who are on fixed incomes, right? Who, who, as you say, can't afford $1,000 as an initial application fee or $500 every two years in order to exercise a right. How did you find these plaintiffs or did they find you in some cases? Well, a, a little of both. We, we advertise, you know, we're constantly, not advertise, but we put the word out that we're looking for plaintiffs, that it's no cost to those individual plaintiffs. We'll help them vindicate their rights and people contact us. Other people just come in because they're looking for us to help them 
with their situation with LA County Sheriff. That's one of the reasons we picked LA County. We probably had 200 people uh, writing in saying, I can't get my permit. It's taking too long. They keep asking for this, that, and the other thing. Help me. And so we have, we try to help those folks as best we can. We can't really help at this point. We're too busy to do individual cases at mm-hmm. this point. But if someone comes in and says, uh, they turned me down because of a parking ticket. Well, that's not just about that individual. That's about a policy. Yeah. So we look at the look at the all the people that come in, what their situation is, whether or not their situation is representative of a larger, more problematic policy, and then we'll go after the the issuing agency over the policy, not necessarily that individual person, but the way all people similarly situated are being treated by the by the by the sheriff's department. So, but they come into us, we reach out to them, uh, you know, and we and we we have been, you know, we've kind of learned that we don't want to get into a big, long, protracted argument over legal standing, over whether the person that we're using as a plaintiff has legal standing to challenge what we're challenging. And so we find the people that have the facts that fit the fit the uh, the situation to avoid that argument. Well, again, you've got some really compelling plaintiffs in this case. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of developments. I was looking at the, uh, the latest docket uh, for this case and saw yesterday um, this case was assigned to a uh, district judge, Sherilyn Peace Garnett and magistrate judge uh, Autumn Spath. Um, and uh, there was also a notice to counsel regarding consent to proceed before the United States magistrate judge. So, so w- tell me about that, Chuck, where, where, I mean, this is obviously, you know, kind of the legal, uh, details here, but, um, this isn't assigned to judge Benitez, unfortunately. Um, no. what, what, what does this mean that this is going to proceed before a, a magistrate judge? Is the magistrate judge going to handle sort of the initial it, proceedings? It, it, it's not. No, look, this is, this is how all federal cases are processed. Okay. Most federal cases are not civil rights cases. So somebody sues somebody for, you know, they got hit by a, by a post office truck, you know, and so they're suing the federal government for breaking their leg. Well, then you could go through the magistrate. Like on a case like that, you probably don't need to go to the United States District Court judge. It's a personal injury case. These lower types of cases. Then you can you can do that in front of a magistrate. Magistrates also can sometimes referee discovery disputes, like information exchanges disputes. And you can get a preliminary ruling out of a magistrate judge, but then it gets reviewed by the district court judge. Anyway, that's more in the weeds than anybody needs to know, because when it comes to constitutional challenges, you we will decline to accept the magistrate. There's no point in mediating. There, this is not a money damages case. It's deck relief. So we'll be in front of the district court judge. Now, that district court judge is a Biden appointee, but she's a former uh, U.S. attorney, prosecutor. So I'm not exactly sure where she fits on the ideal uh, the, the 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 second amendment ideology mm-hmm. and and what she's going to try and do uh biden appointee is a bad sign uh but uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll see you you can't challenge a federal judge in state court you get one preemptory challenge you can knock out the first judge you get and see what you get second but in federal court whoever you get that's who you get so okay hopefully she will some of this stuff is pretty clear. It's not really, I mean, see, but here's the problem. I say that as the logical person. <laughs> right. And then the political guy who's been doing this for a long time and seeing how courts can twist stuff says, well, who, you know, you never know. What, who, yeah. who, we'll see what kind of creative arguments 
every town law coaches the California DOJ and the LA County Council to come up with, and whether it's something that she could plausibly die uh, buy into and adopt. Right. But I mean, when you're taking a year and a half, and the state law says 120 days is the max. How do you get around that one? Absolutely. You know I mean? I, I, listen, I'm with you. I mean, I, I wrote a piece at Bearing Arms yesterday for our VIP uh, members uh, talking about uh, how is Rob Bonta going to defend the ban on non-residents being able to carry in California? I, I, and I, I tried to game this out. I, you know, what are the arguments that he could use? What are the arguments he could raise? And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm not an attorney. I was really drawing a blank, you know, I mean, and, and I love the citation. I think it was the uh, Shuttlesworth case that uh, that you all cited. Um, and I'm so glad that you referred to a civil rights case because this is a civil rights issue. Uh, right. And just as, you know, Birmingham, Alabama said, well, you can't demonstrate, you can't have a parade, you can't have a protest unless we give you a permit, which we're not going to give you. Uh, the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can't do that. You have the same situation here. And so I, I'm I'm with you, like from a logical perspective, I don't know how you defend the indefensible. I, I'm sure every town law is going to try to come up with some way to uh, to argue that, well, you know, carry licenses are different than marriage licenses or driver's licenses, even though there's a right that's implicated here. You know, the state has the ability to determine who gets to do that. And if they decide that, see, even then there, the logic falls apart. Fine. OK, the state wants to decide who gets to carry. But you can't just say that the residents of all 49 other states aren't. Uh, Aren't, aren't, aren't smart enough or trained enough or, you know, they're they're unlawful they're or they're prohibited. They're prohibited from possessing firearms in public in California. This Every person uh, with a CCW, at least, in any other state can't possess here, can't carry here. Yeah. No, that's not, you know. So California never wanted to be able, never wanted people to be able to get a license, out non-residents to get a license. They never wanted non-residents to be able to carry here, which is why they refused to accept out-of-state CCWs. But now they have no choice. I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. Basically, you're you're creating a prohibited class of people. Everybody from the other 49 states who has a permit in that state, they are still prohibited in California. So this is a prohibited, in a sense, it's a prohibited person case. Can you classify yeah. all those people as ineligible to carry a firearm? So we're saying, no, you have to accept their out-of-state permit. Now, if if we get a court to go along with that, I guarantee you the legislature will be up in Sacramento coming up with some non-resident permit process, mm -hmm. which they will try and bog down just like they're trying to bog down the resident permit process. But at least that'll be a step in the right direction. At least it won't be a full ban on non-residents possessing or carrying uh, in California. Yeah. And again, implications for uh, states like New York as well. Um, so we've still got a couple of weeks right before the uh, the state and the other uh, defendants have the uh, the deadline to respond? Well, to respond to the complaint, but we're yeah. going to be filing for an injunction and then they're going to have to, that's going to step things up. So, okay. uh, you know, we don't, you know, the typical process is you file a complaint. The lawsuit is the complaint. They have to file some kind of responsive pleadings within 30 days. Then you go into this fact finding discovery process, which can take years Uh and so we short circuit all that and pretty much and pretty much every group is doing the same. When you file a Second Amendment challenge, if there's been a Second Amendment violation, that is a per se uh, uh, grounds for a preliminary injunction. And so we move for a preliminary injunction right away. So we will get a hearing on a preliminary injunction within three weeks or so. There'll be a briefing schedule that has to be set up and then we'll have a hearing 
uh, on a preliminary injunction. So it accelerates the entire process. So we were probably a month from having that hearing. Uh, and who knows how long after that before we get a ruling from the judge. But at least that will be, you know, we will telegraph. And in many of these cases, that's as far as you go. I mean, the, the, when, the, when the state loses on a preliminary injunction, they, it's called an interlocutory appeal. The case is not final yet because there's no judgment. There's just this ruling on the preliminary injunction. They, you can appeal that. And so that's where we are in the Ninth Circuit on most of these cases. The state lost on the injunction phase. And now they're appealing the loss on the injunction. Then it'll go back down to the trial court to to get a final judgment after we go through the rest of the process. Yeah. Where is uh, where, where I, I, and I'm going to call it a companion case because I think it is the is the other side of the same carry coin, uh, May versus Bonta. Where where are things with May versus Bonta right now? Well, that's our case. That that's the the SB two. Right. And it is it, it's similar. That's a sensitive places case. There, there was a hearing scheduled for yesterday. The court postponed the hearing on its own motion because there's another case that has that makes similar claims and it consolidated the cases and moved the hearing date. I think it's till the I think it's till the 12th, but I'm not quite sure. It's it's anyway, the hearing has been postponed. So there's we're briefed on the injunction. Okay. Now the court has to have a pure oral argument. They'll have a hearing, an evidentiary hearing, a, a little mini trial, and decide what their ruling is going to be. And when do the when does SB2's restrictions kick in? January 1st? January 1st. January okay. 1st. So we're looking for something before then. All right. We'll we, filed that, we filed that case before Newsom even signed the law. Right. He's going to sign it. So we filed it to, to get that ball rolling as fast as we possibly could. But he didn't sign it until the end of September. Yeah. So, you know, we couldn't really file it too, a whole lot sooner and make it go in a whole lot faster. We had to wait until it was actually a law. Well, yeah, because otherwise then you get tossed out because you don't have standing because it's not yet a loss. I mean, I, I, you know, this, there are all right. these intricate details. You know, we saw that happen with, I think, the Antonia case in New York. Uh, the judge said, well, this first case, eh, you're a little premature in filing. They went back, they refiled, and now the case is going on. But right. yeah, there is a, uh, I, I don't know how you keep track of this stuff. Uh, I have a difficult time <laughs> keeping track of all the cases that you all are involved in. But uh, you were doing- Why not just keeping track, but trying to read the briefs. I got a stack- I have a stack about eight inches high of briefs that I'm trying to get to, 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 you know, to read and keep up to speed on what's going on. But there's, you know, there's hundreds of cases going on across the I country know. now. I know. And, and there's probably 50 just from like the big two A groups. And then who knows how many groups, you know, like the Rahimi case was the federal public defender case. Right. So, and, and this is where some of this two A stuff really it's a little sticky because they're raising it as a defense in a criminal prosecution. And that is not the ideal place to be making constitutional arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, because you typically have an unsympathetic defendant like Rahimi. Right. Uh, or Mr. But, Miller in the 1930s, you know, for that matter. Right. Yeah. So, but who knows how many of those cases there are. Bottom line is there's a ton <laughs> of uh, two way cases in courts all across the country uh, we're trying to keep them coordinated as best we can between the CRPA bringing suits in California, the Second Amendment Law Center doing amicus campaigns and all the significant cases across the country. Uh, you know, we're trying to keep our 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 our, our hands and uh, and our and our mind in all these cases to keep track on uh, what kind of legal precedent comes out of them and how we can use that in other places. It's not just this case's legal precedent nationally. Every one of these cases, like SB two. There's been, I think, five jurisdictions that said you can't have these all these places designated as sensitive. 
because California is a year behind on this. Remember, California mm-hmm. couldn't get it passed last year. A bunch of other states passed it, even though California didn't. And so there's been challenges to those, uh, basically the same as SB2 in another state. And they've all, they're pretty much all losing. So you can't, you can't say every park is a sensitive place. Every parking lot is a sensitive place. Right. You know, uh, so there, I, I expect that, you know, that's going to make it easy for that judge to to issue our injunction because other courts already have. So it's not like uh, he's got to go out too far on a limb. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, again, I appreciate you taking a few minutes today. I know that <laughs> we'll let you get back to that stack of briefs behind you, but uh, I, I will be calling on you in the very near future to uh, join us once again, because there is always something new to talk about out there in California. And Chuck, thank you for your time today. Thank you for everything you and your associates are doing. Uh, really, it is just I, I, I thought of this yesterday. You know, you do bear a passing resemblance to uh, Mr. Incredible or Captain Incredible, whoever that guy is from The Incredibles. I thought someone needs to do a picture, a Pixar style picture of your entire team at Michelle and Associates with all of you as superheroes, because you really are Second Amendment superheroes. Uh, and so thank you again for for all the work that you and your associates are doing. Well, I don't think my chest is as big as Mr. Incredible. My waist is certainly not as as tiny as his, but I appreciate that. And Kim, uh, you know, you, you, without folks like you getting the word out because of the, the censorship in the mainstream media about this and the, all the issues and the subtleties, this gets lost, you know, on on most of these reporters. The only way to get it out is through influencers and 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 journalists like you. And so, you know, thank you for keeping people informed. It's, it's This is how people realize that we are in a historic time. This really is, this is, le- we're making legal history here. Yeah. This is like, you know, the civil rights uh, jurisprudence, the First Amendment jurisprudence, all these things. We are in the middle of making history and anybody who supports these uh, efforts is part of history. So we appreciate you and we appreciate uh, folks who support us. Wow. Thank you for the kind words, Chuck. We'll talk again very soon. And uh, thanks for joining us here on Baron Arms, Cam and Company. Okay, till next time, Cam. Thanks. Many thanks to Chuck, not only for joining us on the program today, carving out a couple minutes from a very busy schedule, but again, also for the uh, incredible job that he and uh, his associates have done in putting this lawsuit together. I am so looking forward to uh, seeing. I'm, I'm always curious to see how the defendants in these cases are going to respond when we're talking about such egregious violations of our constitutional rights. I'm really curious to see how Attorney General Rob Bonta is going to uh, try to defend uh, this complete and utter prohibition on uh, bearing arms if you're not a California resident. I, I think I think all of these measures are going to be really difficult to explain away, right? The 18-month waiting period, uh, the $1,000 or more that it'll cost you to apply for a concealed carry license, the mandatory psychological screenings established by some jurisdictions. None of those things, as Chuck said, have uh, the historical analogs that be necessary to keep them in place. But yeah, I, I, I want to I see the reasoning deployed in defense of the indefensible and I guess we'll get to see that defense coming up in a few weeks. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a case out of Texas, a Beaumont man pleading guilty to a 2021 shooting that left four people wounded and walking away with probation as a result. I mean, this is just kind of crazy. 25-year-old Jose Francisco Ortiz Roca 
of uh, Beaumont pleaded guilty on Monday before Judge John Stevens in Jefferson County Criminal District Court to four charges of aggravated assault. He was indicted on these charges two years ago after he was arrested in connection with a shooting at a club parking lot. Uh, Four people were wounded in the shooting. Happened just after 3 a.m. on April 4th, 2021. Each of the four charges, a first-degree felony, punishable by five to 99 years in prison if he'd been found guilty at trial. Um, But instead, he takes this plea deal and he's sentenced to 10 years probation on each charge. So no prison time whatsoever. I thought, okay, well, maybe there was some sort of self-defense allegation here, some sort of you know argument that could have been made that, uh, look, he was not the initial aggressor. He was acting in defense. Maybe these people you know, were innocent bystanders. But God, it doesn't really sound like that. Um, according to multiple witnesses, they said that um, Ortiz Rocha was driving a maroon GMC Sierra. So he's behind the wheel of a vehicle. He's in this parking lot. He could drive away, right? Instead, he fired into a crowded parking lot through the driver's window. Uh, witnesses told police that there were, quote, numerous disturbances in the parking lot that led to the shooting. So it may very well have been that Ortiz Rocha was not the initial aggressor, that there were other things going on. But given that he was behind the wheel of a car, one would think he could have exited that parking lot or at least ducked down. He apparently was the only person charged with firing shots in this incident. So it's unclear whether or not there were any guns, any other guns involved. And it's also unclear why prosecutors were so intent on offering a deal like this when they had witnesses who would testify that he was the shooter. But for whatever reason, Ortiz Rocha getting a 10-year probationary sentence for four violent felony charges. Today's Armed Citizen story, also from the Lone Star State, quite a bit of ways away from Beaumont, uh, in uh, West Texas, Amarillo, where police say a homeowner shot and killed an intruder who kicked in his door. This was just before midnight on Monday. Police called to a, a home in the 800 block of North Nelson Street on reports of shots fired. When they arrived, they found 38-year-old Jose Roberto Gutierrez Torres in the driveway of the home, suffering from a gunshot wound. Uh, He passed away from his injuries. The homicide unit determined that Gutierrez Torres had tried to break into a home by kicking to the front door. Police said the homeowner, in an act of self-defense, shot Gutierrez Torres. The homeowner interviewed by homicide detectives before he was released. Again, police say that this was an act of self-defense. They might refer this case to the uh, local DA or a grand jury, but uh, homeowner not arrested. Again, somebody kicks in your front door in the middle of the night. They're not there to sell you Girl Scout cookies, right? You have a right to protect yourself and the people inside that home. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing willing and able to do the right thing. A a teenager, not his first day on the job, but his fourth day on the job, saving a life. Jackson Tehran is his name. He uh, is a busboy at the uh, the, uh, restaurant Carnivore in the Queen, which is in uh, Downers Grove, Illinois. And while he was at work, again, his fourth day on the job, the uh, teenager noticed that a man in the restaurant was choking. Uh, Jackson Durant says, I noticed a man, he was choking, and I noticed a noise, so I looked over there just to make sure everything was all right. And he could see the guy was really struggling to breathe. He told NBC Chicago that he rushed over there, said, I saw his face was getting red. I asked if he was okay, and he started shaking his head. So that's when Duran started performing the Heimlich Maneuver. 
Eventually was able to dislodge the obstruction in the man's throat, get him to start breathing again. Uh, Daron said he was taught the Heimlich in ninth grade, 15 years old, so not all that long ago. Uh, but he also said he watched a lot of 911 shows on Hulu. He said, I, I don't know how to explain it. I just reacted. I, I mean, I never thought that watching TV could help you save a life, but I, I guess it depends on what you're learning, right? So uh, Jackson Tehran in the right place at the right time. Willing and able to do the right thing to save the life of a stranger there while on the job at Carnivore in the Queen. I like the name of the restaurant, by the way. We thank you, Jackson, for your very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on today's Barry and Arms Cam and Company. We will be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information. And, of course, we're updating the website constantly throughout the day, whether it's uh, Al Gore comparing social media algorithms to AR-15s or a federal judge in New Mexico further limiting uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's ban on concealed carry in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. Uh, we are reporting the latest details for you. If you like what you see, I would encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. All you have to do, go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. News stories, analysis, you get the VIP Gold live chats with Hot Airs at Morris and myself, as well as other great live chats from the uh, Town Hall Media family. Again, I'd encourage you to uh, check out all that is offered through our VIP and VIP Gold memberships. Just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.